welcome to the podcast, Justin. Excellent. That's good. That's a great intro. <laughs> <laughs> now you're supposed to say thank you for having me or something. Oh, like oh, oh, right, right. <laughs> I'm recording. Record right? Oh, you are recording. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I thought you were just I thought you were just I'm Gerardo Poli. I'm Hubert Hemstra, and this is the Vet Vault. Hello, Vet Vaulters. We are thrilled to welcome you to our first ever clinical episode of the Vet Vault, and we're starting with a corker of an episode. In this two-part series, we talk to Professor Bruce Perry, a former clinical pathologist from Melbourne University, about a topic that continues to flabbergast vets of all ages and experience levels, coagulation how it works, what it means in the real world, and how to practically apply this knowledge in the cases that you'll see. I don't know about you, G, but all I can remember from before listening to Bruce were some vague memories of a Y-shaped pathway and a lot of numbers from my uni days. And I have a total disconnect between that knowledge and what I see and do in practice. Totally. But this talk with Professor Parry has changed that. Bruce explains coagulation in a beautifully simple and practical way that finally makes all the pieces of the puzzle fall into place. In this first episode, we cover primary coagulation. We talk everything platelets, how to pick up cases of thrombocytopenia, pro tips to make sure you get the right answers, and common pitfalls that will lead you astray. We also look at buccal mucosal bleeding time test, how to do it, and what information it will provide. And don't forget to go check out the show notes for the episode at thevetful.com. I've created some notes that you can refer back to at a later stage once you've forgotten all these awesome things you've listened to. And we'll do that for every clinical episode. We're also excited to introduce you to our very first sponsor on The Vetvault. This episode and this guest is brought to you by HESCA, the most exciting new player in in-house diagnostics in Australia. If you haven't heard the name yet, just wait. HESCA is not some backwater startup trying to flog cheap lab equipment. They have an excellent reputation globally and holds the top three position in pretty much every country that has a thriving vet community, like the United States, most of Europe, UK, and Australia. HESCA aims to change the way you think about and run your in-house diagnostics to save you both time and money while increasing your standards of care. And best of all, you don't pay a cent for the analyzers. You only pay for the test you perform. That's it. It's that simple. Pay less, get more, no tricks. Go check them out at heska.com.au or better yet, go to heska.com.au forward slash vetfold to get access to a special offer that they've created exclusively to the listeners of the vetfold, which gives you $5,000 worth of free consumables. That's heska.com.au forward slash vetvault. And we'll tell you more about this later. Now, Let's get to our guest and part one of A Practical Approach to Diagnosing Coagulopathy. Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. So here we go. We're going to squeeze you with a case. Bruce, how do you tackle a bleeding dog? Not one from a cut, okay? Yeah, okay. So we're, we're suspecting that this animal has a, an actual coagulopathy of some kind that's causing it to, to bleed. And I think it is helpful at the beginning to think of coagulation in terms of, of primary and secondary hemostasis, even though these two aspects of, of blood clotting do over, um, overlink with each other. Uh, essentially, if you have a problem of platelets, which is the main part of primary 
anticoagulation, the type of bleeding that you get tends to be of a petechial nature and tends to be from mucous membranes and maybe into subcutaneous tissues. So that can be a, a help in directing your initial diagnostic path. If it's a problem of, of secondary hemostasis, which is more the coagulation cascade, then the pattern of bleeding tends to be more internal. So you get bleeding into body cavities, such as the, the chest, the abdomen and joints. And you do get overlap between the two. I'm not suggesting you don't. And that the main overlap is in the subcutaneous and uh, ecumotic sorts of hemorrhage. Uh, they can be a bit more difficult to figure out where to go to begin with. But broadly speaking, the pattern of hemorrhage is a good place to start. Oh, especially what you said there about the ecumotic hemorrhages, because I've seen some primary hemostatic dis disorders like amenia, thrombocytopenia, um, and they are like, they're, they're worse than IMHAs. Like they, these guys are nasty and they turn into like brute, like massively bruised dogs that um, just look like secondary coagulopathies because of the degree of mm. like, bruising or bleeding into the subcutaneous hemorrhages and, uh, and subcutaneous tissues. So it's, it's, it was really cool to hear that because I've often wondered them, you know, they almost look like coagulation ca cascade issues. If you're not sure whether you might be dealing with primary or secondary hemostasis, I'm a great believer in, in keeping things simple. And that the simplest thing that you can do late at night is collect some blood and make a blood smear and then stain that with DiffQuick and look for platelets. Because it, if you have a, a bleeding disorder that's due to a thrombocytopenia, you will pick that up on a blood smear. Um, within 30 seconds of looking at that blood smear because a, a normal animal, a normal dog or cat, should have about 10 to 15 platelets per oil immersion field when you look down the microscope. So we're, we're looking at, at these blood samples at a 1,000 magnification and given that a normal platelet count is around 200 to 500 um, by 10 to the 9 per litre, that corresponds to around 10 to 15 platelets per oil immersion field. Now, you don't get a clinical coagulopathy until you get platelet counts below about 40 or 50 by 10 to the 9 per litre. So that's one-fifth of the normal count. So if you have a severely thrombocytopenic animal where the thrombocytopenia is going to be the cause of the hemorrhage, then you're going to be seeing two or three or fewer platelets per oil field. So that it's really a very simple test. But the main caveat is that it needs to be a fresh blood sample, one you've collected in the last 10 to 15 minutes, I'd suggest as a, a maximum. And you, yes, put it into EDTA, then make your smear. And if you, if you see 10 platelets per field, it's not the cause of the animal's bleeding. If you see only a few, go and look at the feathered edge of the smear and check for platelet clumping. Because if you, if you have platelet clumps or aggregates out of the feathered edge, you can assume the platelet count is adequate for hemostasis. Does it, does it matter how big these platelet clumps are? Because I've, you see big rafts of platelets, which kind yeah. of take up a whole entire field. And then you see these tiny little clusters, which are like, you can almost individually count seven platelets. 
you yes. know, like. Look, it, it, it's the longer you delay making a blood smear that's going to result in the bigger platelet clumps usually. Cats, their, their platelets are very reactive compared to dogs. So platelet clumping is a much bigger issue in cats than it is in dogs. Um, and, and then the other thing is that cats being smaller, it's harder to get a blood sample. So you're more likely to activate a few platelets. And once you start activating platelets, it doesn't matter that you put the blood sample into EDTA, they're still going to aggregate because EDTA stops the coagulation cascade. It only slows platelet clumping. It doesn't stop it. Uh, okay. So the fresh blood is, be, so to, is to stop that clumping. That's why we want to look at it nice yeah. and fresh yeah. because you're going to actually get a, get a decent look at your platelet count. Yes. Can you make a smear to evaluate platelets straight off the animal, like an ear prick or like if I make that, a blood smear from an ear margin with not an EDTA, is that going to be adequate? It's going to give me a good... That will be fine. Yes, but you, do not, you don't have to anticoagulate the blood, but most people don't do it that way. And so if there's going to be any sort of a delay then put it into, into EDTA. But if, if you do an, an ear prick and look at the, the blood from there, you, you should find that there'll be plenty of platelets in a normal animal. I'm, I'm just wondering if you look at a smear that's from an EDTA, EDTA sample, it looks a bit iffy, looks a bit low, but you think there might be some clumping in that feather's edge. Would it make sense then to go, well, let me double check, go make an ear prick, repeat my smear and go, ah, plenty of platelets. It's not platelets. Let's move along. Absolutely. Yes, I, I would. I'd recommend that when you think you've got a low count, you do verify it by first of all looking for the aggregates, because that's in the sample that you've already got. And if you see aggregates, you go, "Oh well, it's probably going to be fine." Let's look at some other cause for this coagulopathy. Um, but if you don't see the aggregates, then I would double check the apparent thrombocytopenia with another sample, and an ear prick would be a, a good way of doing it. I love that idea of an ear prick because almost always you go back to a vein, right? And then if they're coagulopathic, you blow another vein, yay fun. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, but I learned so much there just, just straight from the – because the, the, what we do, or at least at our hospital, because we our, our, every time we pull blood that's going to go into any kind of like, um, I don't know, EDA tube or whatever, we all – and PCVTP or whatever, always which, what, what comes with it is a, a blood smear. Like, always, like every – patient gets a blood smear every time they get a, an IV catheter. Whether we look at the blood smear or not, that's different, right? It could sit there for a while, sit there, never be used, but it's saved our butts so many times when it's like, oh, my God, the plate that counts low, is that real? We got a blood smear, yeah. you know? Yeah. But then the other alternative is pricking a smaller vessel just to get in a bit, a bit of blood that way. So Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. On that topic of low platelet counts on machines and that, Bruce, I, I want to talk about the, or ask about the discrepancies between the machines and what you're going to see on a smear. So am I right in saying if the machine reads, so let's say you're not looking for, for, for problems and you do a standard, run some standard bloods and the machine says platelets are normal, that's going to be normal. That's never going to lie to you. Is that, is that right? I, Yes, I think as far as you can ever say something yeah. absolutely, yeah, yeah, that's that's a pretty pretty absolute statement. Okay. Yes. Okay, but but if it's low, then definitely go and look at a smear to to say yes or no. Again, I, that's that would be my recommendation, and it's it's good if you've made the smear at the time you've collected the sample. You know, you you can go back to it 
and the, the blood is never going to look better mm. than one minute after collection. It's actually a very good, good habit to get into, Gerardo. It's a, that's a good tip there. Okay. Take the blood and before you put it in that last drop, smear it out. It's excellent. We're going to take a quick break to learn a bit more about our sponsor for the episode. We are committed at the Vet Vault to only feature sponsors and products that we think can add real value to you. And today's sponsor is no different. And then we'll get straight back to Professor Parry and more coagulation. We are speaking to Dr. Justin Chu, who is the Territory Manager for New South Wales at our sponsor for this episode, HESCA. Justin spent almost 20 years in clinical practice, including two years in a management role for one of the large groups of practices in Australia before taking on his new challenge. So Justin, I came across the name HESCA for the first time about 18 months ago when I was doing research for our clinic to look at the options for our in-house labs that we do. And my first thought was, who the heck is HESCA? So um, who the heck is HESCA? I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, Hesker was founded 30 years ago uh, in the US. Uh, Hesker provides blood diagnostics, digital x-ray and ultrasound equipment, as well as allergy testing and treatment. Our current CEO launched the Reset subscription program to turn the business of in-house blood diagnostics on its head, right? It disrupted the, the, uh, the current business model. So what does that, what does that look like? What is the, the Reset program? Yeah, the Reset program is really, it solves a big problem when it comes to general veterinary practice, right? Which is the barrier of entry to purchase cutting edge, best in class analyzers by, by not having any upfront cost. You don't actually have to stump up 40 to 50 grand for analyzers. That's huge. That's huge, especially for a small, smaller business. It's a huge stumbling block. That's right. And when I was setting up a practice a few years ago, it was a no brainer if I had that option. Yeah. Right. And and then I can, you know, reallocate those funds to hire someone else um, or to um, buy some other equipment. So how does the business model work for Hesca then? So we're not buying the machines. Where, where does Hesca generate profit from? Yeah. So basically we have a subscription model where you commit to purchasing uh, X amount of consumables for a certain period of time. So that really depends on on the needs of your practice. And so the idea is then that uh, you're spending into purchasing consumables only. Yeah, we warranty the uh, analyzers. We, you know, we service the analyzers. You know, if the analyzers actually don't, don't work, we take on the responsibility of replacing it or repairing it. So the city can be thinks immediately, okay, cool. So we're not paying for the machine, but I'm, I'm going to pay for the machine in the cost of the consumables. I know it's not the fact because I've looked into this, but uh, just give us a bit of a rundown of your, of your price point of the consumables. Yeah, you know, um, that's right. I mean, we don't actually charge you double the cost or whatever to subsidize the, 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 the analyzers, right? We genuinely um, have a very attractive, well-priced point. And it turns out to be about 30 to 35% to our competitors. Which in a, in a big busy clinic makes a big difference. Absolutely. And further to that, right? I mean, for budgetary considerations, we also cap the price increase year on year. You know, in, in essence, it's a price protection. Okay, gotcha. So, so you're not going to hook us in with a 30% less price guarantee and then next year you double the price or something like that's that. That's right. That's right. Pay less, get more. There's no tricks to this. Yeah, that generally sounds like it. Now, I'm going to do a bit of marketing for you. You can thank me later, but but we trialed the ESCA machines at our clinic and we will probably get them. I'm waiting for a few things to go through. Uh, a big concern, obviously, when you look at diagnostic equipment is reliability and quality of the machines. Uh, 
again, you look at a new company and I, I thought, well, you know, are they, are they going to be up to scratch? Are they going to match the, the quality that we have? They lovely machines. We ran side-to-side -side analysis with our external labs and the, our current machinery. They are reliable. So no risk there. I mean, you, you guys have some research to, to back that up as well. Yeah, well, thank you for doing that. You know, nothing like independent research because, you know, similarly for me, when I took on this role, I needed to uh, do some investigation. Am I going to be promoting a, a product that is, is reliable and accurate and, um, and robust? Um, I believe, yeah, it is. And I backed the machines. And similarly, with all the trials and demos that we've done, everyone's been happy with the results. It correlates really well with reference labs. And um, certainly our current customers are very happy with, um, with what they're getting. There's one thing I've got to mention. You need a teeny tiny amount of blood for the, for the hematology. Uh, and I know you told me a story once, something about mice that I think illustrates it so beautifully. What's the, what's the story there? Yeah, we were involved um, in uh, a university uh, tender, actually. They were looking to um, procure some analyzers for their ongoing research on mice. And so, you know, I guess the, the, the practical challenge is how much blood do we need to sample to get serial results? I guess I pose this question to you, you know, what is the blood volume of a, a mouse? <laughs> I'm trying to think how much does a mouse weigh? I don't know, 100, 100 mils or 50, no, 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 way less, no, 50 mils. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be 1.5 mils. <laughs> so that's your standard, you know, EDTA uh, purple top tube. Right? Yeah, so, so, so if you took took a standard sample from a mouse, I could just imagine the mouse turning into a little raisin at the end of your knee when you're trying yeah. to take your full. In fact, you know, ethics board restrictions are that if you take 10% of that blood volume, which is uh, 0.15 mils, you can't actually uh, use that subject again for another month until it regenerates its its blood again. So it came down to... Um, you know, what's, what's, what's the minimum? So in practice, you know, we, our, our published minimum is 0 0.015 or 15 microliters. Uh, yeah, but in practice, it turns out to be 0 0.03. And based on that, um, you know, we won the tender and uh, deployed uh, hematology analyzer to the, the research unit at this university. And the different teams that use it um, are so happy they keep, you know, coming back and repurchasing more and more reagents, which, you know, obviously we're thrilled about. Uh, and it just goes to show that they back our, our equipment as well, right? Nothing, nothing more high standard than, you know, peer-reviewed um, research. They're not going to sign up to some ravage machine that's going to give unreliable results. Justin, um, you have a special offer for our buyers. We mentioned it at the beginning of the episode, but what, what are the details there? Yeah, so if you go to our website, hesca.com.au slash vetvault, mm -hmm. you will be able to, for a limited time, get a special offer valued at $5,000 when you become a Reset subscription member, right? So all you have to do is just go to the website and, um, you know, give me a call and um, hopefully, you know, we will add value to your practice and ultimately bring the standards of care, you know, as high as possible to your patients. So free machines at $5,000 worth of consumables. Uh, uh, Vetval, no, not vetval.com. That's our website. Uh, Hesca.com.au forward slash vetvault. I think you better get ready for the phone to start ringing, Justin. Um, yeah. It's basically a no-brainer, right? You know. <laughs> I know. I was starting a practice at the moment who I'd be calling about my in-house lab equipment. Justin, I can't have 
a vet on the end of the mic and not ask one or two vet related questions. So you made the jump from clinical practice to, um, to, to the industry a couple of, was it two years now, 18 months? How long have you been out for? Uh, about a year now, just over yeah, a year. Just over a yeah. year. Are there things that you miss? We could all think about reasons to leave practice on some days, yes. but are there things that, yes. that, you, that you miss? Uh, it sounds like a major cliche, but I actually do miss petting those puppies and kittens. <laughs> um, you know, and of course, you know, once you've worked enough years and have enough experience, you know, you see them from the puppy stage, you know, to middle-aged and to the end of the life, right? So continuing that life cycle uh, is something that I do miss. The other thing I actually miss is uh, being able to treat the patients and get good outcomes out of it, right? Because you know very well that it's your intervention that, um, you know, managed to, to treat its problem and, and you know, um, get it out of suffering or, or you know, make, make it a happy pet. Yeah. Um, and I guess another big um thing that i miss is the uh, flow state of surgery yeah and what that i mean is you know um having the ability and the courage to attempt a surgery that's just a bit above you know your skill level and and you know get in that state where you know time just just passes right yeah um so yeah i actually do miss that um next time you're in perth i'll shove you into surgery and make you cut something get to get, get you back on the horse <laughs> I will, I will, you, you know, keep you to that promise because, yeah, I'm missing it and I, I, I want to get back into it. But, you know, yeah. it's just like riding a bike, right? Justin, thank you so much for chatting to us. Thank you for getting involved in the Vet Vault and giving us Professor Bruce Perry. I am loving his content and thank you for making that possible. Best thank of you luck. for the opportunity. Thank you. So now we've, we've, we've got our bleeding patient and we weren't sure from the clinical signs, whether it was primary or secondary. We've done a blood smear and it looks like we've got a decent amount of platelets. So what's next? Where do we go to? It might depend on the, the animal you're dealing with, um, whether you're still convinced it's, it's a primary hemostatic problem or not. If your conviction is that, yes, this looks like it's going to be bleeding from a mucosal surface, um, so it quite possibly is primary hemostasis and it's, say, a Doberman where there's a very high uh, rate of von Willebrand's disease, then the next thing I'd be recommending in practice is to do a buccal mucosal bleeding time because, again, it's a very simple test um, that's quite cost-effective. If, if you've got a, a dog with von Willebrand's disease and it, it, it's a disease that's been reported in more than 50 different breeds of animal uh, dogs around the world. So you know, it's not uncommon, which is a great clinical pathology term, I know, a not uncommon problem. Um, a, a BMBT is another good sort of screening test to try, but it is a uh, not, not inaccurate, but you know, it's not, not foolproof. Yeah, rough and, um, rough and ready. Rough and ready. That's a good term, rough and ready. Yeah. Um, but if you've got a, a, a Doberman, for instance, that's got a very low von Willebrand's factor, that animal will have a prolonged buccal mucosal bleeding time. No, no doubt about it. Uh, Dobermans can have von Willebrand's factor values down around 10% of normal. And when they're down at that sort of level, they almost always have a long buccal mucosal bleeding time. Okay. So it's it's a good screening test for a really severe uh, primary hemostatic problem. 
Does it have to be a standardized, like, little canister thing? A little, like, uh, you, like a, a... yeah, absolutely. Uh, there, there are a couple of devices on the market that you should use. You should not be using a scalpel. Um, you make too deep uh, an incision with a scalpel. Uh, you mightn't think you're making a deep incision, but but these uh, little devices have a they have two blades that when you push the trigger they spin out of the device and make a really shallow nick in the mucosal surface. So it's very standardised, and and so it's reasonably accurate and um, normal. Buckle mucosal bleeding times now. I should have checked this before tonight, but somewhere around one to four minutes. Um, look it up in the, the textbooks. Um, a, a dog with severe von Willebrand's disease will have a value that's uh, probably around six, seven, eight minutes. Okay. And if, if you're lucky enough to get a, a Scottish Terrier um, with von Willebrand's disease, they have uh, a total absence of von Willebrand's factor. And those dogs have BMBTs of over 30 minutes. Why do you say lucky enough? You, you mean unlucky <laughs> enough. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that doesn't sound like a lucky it's, thing. It's, not really lucky. <laughs> it's one, one of those things. I, I was the proud owner of a Scottish Terrier with von Willebrand's disease several years ago. And uh, it, it's a good example of um, this dog was about uh, a year of age when he presented. He'd had several bouts of, of bleeding. Uh, when he was getting his adult teeth and and that sort of thing, but so it was the classic um, mucosal sort of hemorrhage. Uh, but he, it's not that he would bleed to death; it was just he bled excessively. Okay. And so this dog was quite happy and healthy, apart from the fact that when they fed him kibble, mm-hmm. he would bleed from the from the gums. And this dog led a perfectly normal life. Yet he had no von Willebrand's factor. So, so just to just to everybody's clear on it. So those guys are never going to bleed spontaneously. There's got to be a, a trauma of some sort, and then they are going to bleed excessively from there. That's certainly the case with the Dobermans. They they rarely spontaneously bleed, but they um, they get subcutaneous hematomas quite often. So they'll they'll run into something. And they'll bump themselves, and you know, you, a normal dog wouldn't get this swelling, but the um, the the Dobie with uh, severe von Willebrand's disease may. And again, they run into something, and they might get epistaxis. Now, now I'm going to ask a question that that shows exactly why people get confused with this, because I should know the answer. <laughs> but so in in practice, without the von Willebrand's test, so if we've if we if you do a buccal mucosal time test and it's normal. Yes. What have we what have we ruled out and what haven't we ruled out in terms of I, I think I think you've ruled out a, a almost certainly a uh, a problem of von Willebrand's factor and you would have would have ruled out severe thrombocytopenia as well because the other cause of a prolonged buccal mucosal bleeding time is profound thrombocytopenia. So that's why my approach is always do the platelet count first because if you do a BMBT and it's prolonged, then you've got to go back and do the platelet count. Okay, gotcha. And, and unless you've got a bleeding Doberman, um, I'd be suspecting thrombocytopenia as the cause of mucosal sort of hemorrhage before I'd be thinking of von Willebrand's disease. 
But we haven't ruled out all clotting problems yet. The dog, the oh. animal could still be okay. There we go. So what's no, next? The the the, the, the BMBT can be prolonged essentially by four things: severe thrombocytopenia, von Willebrand's disease, then a a, a platelet uh, function disorder. But they are, as a congenital problem, quite rare. And as an acquired problem, they're usually very mild. You know, things, some of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs can cause a slightly prolonged BMBT. But, you know, they, they don't usually cause a clinical coagulopathy. Yes, these things will uh, prolong something like a buccal mucosal bleeding time, but not to the point of being clinically apparent. And, and the last thing that, that theoretically can prolong the BMBT is a collagen disorder. But they're so rare, so I think you can forget them right at the beginning. Okay. And, and thrombocytopathies you can pretty well eliminate. So you've got two main causes, and that's von Willebrand's disease and thrombocytopenia. Excellent. Bruce, we've got to go back to thrombocytopenia. The most common cause and, and what proportion of it would be most common most commonly, if that makes sense, like I think that the most common cause is immune mediated thrombocytopenia, mm-hmm. um, without a doubt. So it's usually in an older animal, you know, not a not a young animal because they they don't tend to occur until the animals are what middle aged. Um, but yeah, immune mediated thrombocytopenia is is the most common. The other thing I'd say about that is that that in terms of a a cause of thrombocytopenia. Bleeding is probably never going to be the cause of thrombocytopenia. Bleeding, bleeding causes anemia, but it, it, in my experience, and I think probably everybody's experience, it never causes leukopenia. Your white cell count's always normal, and your platelet count, while it may be decreased, it will never be so low that it's going to be seen as the cause of the bleeding. Okay, so you could get a PCV of, of what, 0.12 or 0.15 litre per litre and your platelet count's probably going to be no less than 100 by 10 to the 9 per litre. And, and you, you need to have a platelet count that's lower than about 40 before you're going to get a bleeding tendency. And it needs to be down around 10 before you get spontaneous hemorrhage. I think that's, that's an important thing to think of. And, and the other thing is if, if you're just talking about thrombocytopenia as a finding, there are, there are other causes of thrombocytopenia. Um, and, and a really good one is if you have just sedated the animal with something like acepromazine or, or xylazine, uh, in, in perhaps in a cocktail, and they cause great splenic relaxation. And about a third of the platelets in the circulation are in the spleen under normal conditions. So if you go expanding that spleen's capacity by 30%, mops them all up. 30% of the platelets that were in the circulation are now in the spleen. Sucks it up like a sponge. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it does the same for PCV. If you look at an animal's PCV after you've sedated it uh, with this ACE or, or uh, xylazine, its PCV can be 0.15. It's not anemic. It's just the, the, the spleen has, as you said, acted like a sponge. And there are 
many more red cells in the spleen at that time. So you, you've got to be very careful when you collect blood samples you know, and what you might have done to the animal before you collected the blood sample. That, that's a good one for going down a rabbit hole thinking maybe it is thrombocytopenic when, you know, it was only mildly so. And, and the, another one that you'll find in the textbooks that I don't think is all that important or common, but when you use a modified live virus vaccine, particularly with distemper virus in it, you do get a thrombocytopenia um, about, I think it's two days to 10 days after vaccination because the, the, the platelets are removed from the circulation and there is a bit of a thrombocytopenia, but it's, it's not low enough to ever cause a coagulopathy. Yet the, the recommendation has been for many, many years, don't do elective surgery on an animal for one to two weeks after vaccination. And that was the reason, because they will be somewhat thrombocytopenic. Oh, see, those are the kind of tips I love. <laughs> I, didn't, uh, I don't think I've ever heard that. Well, what's the, what's the mechanism? Why, why does it go thrombocytopenic after the vaccine? There, I think it's platelets being consumed, uh, platelets being used up as, as part of the immune response to the vaccine. Okay. And, and platelets are just, they're getting used up as well. I think that's the mechanism. Wow. So let's, let's recap quickly, Jaro. So if you've got a, a bleeding dog, bleeding dog with low platelets, the platelets aren't low because it's bleeding. It's always, it's bleeding because the platelets are low. If you have a non-bleeding dog with moderately low platelets, then don't always freak out about it. Go, have I sedated it? Has it had a, has it had a vaccination? Just be sure that there's, so don't always jump up and down for a for moderately, modestly low platelet count. Is that correct? I think so. And the, the other, just to finish that off, would be the other two good examples of a, a, a mild to moderate thrombocytopenia will be in sight hounds. So greyhounds, their normal platelet counts are about a, 120 to 250 by 10 to the 9 per litre. So they're, they're lower than conventional dogs. And nobody sure why, but it must confer some sort of a, an advantage to them when they're doing their athletic stuff and the other is the uh, the cavalier king charles spaniels that have a, a macro thrombocytopenia so they they for some bizarre reason they produce fewer platelets that are bigger uh, and their platelet counts can be quite low they can be down around the 40 by 10 to the 9 per litre but they don't bleed because they've got bigger platelets and bigger platelets are actually better than little platelets, so they can get by with a lower platelet and not bleed. Awesome. That's just to throw another curveball in there. <laughs> That's excellent. The, then the other thing, uh, just thinking about platelets uh, one little bit more, when you're looking at your blood smear, uh, if you have an animal that is genuinely thrombocytopenic and got quite a low platelet count, so we're talking down around the, the 10 to 20 by 10 to the 9 per litre, so you're only seeing one or two platelets every second field. If you see most of the platelets being bigger than you think they normally should be, so you're seeing macro thrombocytes, that very strongly suggests that the bone marrow knows the animal is thrombocytopenic and is trying to produce more platelets, extra platelets. 
So that would strongly support the idea of immune-mediated thrombocytopenia. If the platelets you see are all small, normal-sized platelets, that suggests the bone marrow isn't doing that. And that suggests that the thrombocytopenia may be more likely due to a primary bone marrow problem and that the bone marrow just isn't producing platelets. So the size of the platelets can give you a bit of an idea. And the newer analyzers are producing mean platelet volume data and, you know, platelet curves. And so as we get better at interpreting those sort of statistics, I think we'll start to interpret this sort of thing, you know, with a greater degree of finesse. Excellent. This is so useful. All right. So we've covered platelets, buccal mucosal times. What else? What else have we got at our fingertips? We're going to continue this discussion in our next episode when Bruce will be talking about secondary coagulation and specifically the coagulation cascade. Thank you for listening. Remember to go and check out our show notes at thevetvelt.com for a summarized version of all the content from today. And give us some feedback. Tell us what you think. Did you like the clinical content? Would you like to hear more? And what would you like to hear more about? And finally, if you found value in this, remember to go and tell some of your friends and colleagues to have a listen. We'll see you next time.